Welcome to another edition of Reimagining Cyber. This is Stan, and we decided to do something a little different today. Rob and I, along with our producer Ben, have pulled together a number of clips from previous episodes, and the theme is around being in the role of the Chief Information Security Officer. And so we're going to start off today with an episode uh, with Parm Eftakari. It was episode 17, titled Cybersecurity and the Modern CISO. And at the time, Parm was the Executive Vice President of the Cyber Risk Alliance. And he's speaking to the role of the CISO and how it's changed over the years. I think that the role of the CISO, uh, uh, and, and really uh, depending on the size of the organization, um, those who were tasked with being um, leading cybersecurity and, and, and leading risk, I think what we see is that they're they're becoming more and more uh, business leaders and business executives, at least I think the ones who are more effective and, and efficient in their role understand that it's less about them actually uh, implementing the technology and, and, and kind of doing the, the, the blocking and tackling themselves. They have teams to do that. What's really important for the CISO to do is understand how to navigate um, the business side of the organization to make sure that the priorities that uh, they have uh, as, as the head of the security shop uh, get elevated to the business leaders, right? The board, the CFO, the CEO, the president, all the business unit leads within their organization. And that CISO uh, really acts as that liaison between these these roles. So I think as you go up um, kind of the food chain, so to speak, and uh, organizations become larger, have more employees, have more endpoints, have have just uh, uh, you know, more, um, more scale to them, uh, you see the CISO becoming uh, more involved in and being a business leader, I think that's really been the most stark evolution and, and, and how that trans, translates into what they do. Our next clip is with Tim Rohrbau. Tim was the former CISO of JetBlue and has been in a number of different organizations over the years and has reported to different executives. And he gives his perspective on that as well as the budgeting process for information security organizations. First, there's the overall budget question, right? And I've tried to address this because it's the season and there's a lot of different debate, but I'll tell you, I am a firm believer, and, I, and first, let me qualify this, is that in 15 years of being a public company, public market CEO, a CISO, I actually have probably reported to a CIO or CTO uh, maybe five of those years. The rest of the time, general counsel and you know, across the board. Okay, I wasn't. I wasn't directly in banking, so not the risk officer. But you get my point. I've been all of various, <laughs> various reporting structures. Yes, and honestly, I don't think it matters. It, it matters mm. the relationship, the people. Do they understand? Are they an advocate? But you've got to have, regardless of who that reporting structure is, you've got to have FaceTime with your audit committee. You know, you got to mm-hmm. have. You got to have. You got to have. You know, the people who actually need. To know that you're protecting them, the shareholders, the employees, and the customers, they need to they need to hear it from you, and you need to be challenged to explain it to them. Okay, so so that being said, I do believe that the budget should be tied to to a metric which is IT, and the reason is because in cyber, if you have if you're a CSO and you have physical, set that aside. But mm-hmm. if you're a if you're a CISO and you have cyber then what you're doing is you're trying to address risk associated or potential of misuse, right, of technology. Technology investment by the company is captured in the IT budget. So is the labor 
that is associated with using that IT. And so what you have is you have this perfect place to actually pin your budget to a certain percentage. And if we're not pinned, and this is the way, you know, a lot of people can debate this, but I think we are 10% of IT as a base. And then we adjust up and down based on the threat landscape and the regulatory landscape. So that was Tim Robau from episode 70, speaking on the role of the CISO and how they aligned in the organization as well as the budget. Next up, we're going to the federal sector with Nick Ward, who at the time was the CISO for the Department of Justice in episode 18, which we focused on really the executive order that just hit it the street at the time and how the U.S. was focusing on cybersecurity more specifically and how Nick viewed the EO and what CISOs need to do in response to it. You know, I'm not going to presume to uh, be in the minds of whoever authored different part portions of the executive order, uh, but it was certainly a major driver for everybody working on that. Um, I think um, if you read through some of the language, there's probably some influence of the Colonial Pipeline uh, incident as well, and that uh, that likely went into the EO. Uh, but as you can tell, the EO is pretty focused on how does the federal government defend itself against our foreign adversaries? And so for that reason, I think SolarWinds was probably uh, the, the major driver behind that. You know, one of the, the requirements out of the executive orders for, for NIS with others uh, supporting them to define what critical software means, and that should help you prioritize what you need to focus on. They've also rolled out some preliminary guidance uh, that they call fundamental um, around the, the kind of uh, measures you need to put in place. How, how are you going to move forward uh, given that this is now on the table um, as far as identifying critical software, taking action based on the recommendation, recommendations they've rolled out? NIST gives us the tool, is giving us another tool for us to be able to figure out how to apply supply chain risk management. And it's, it's going to, it helps us focus on those situations where a foreign nation state may target U.S. trusted high quality companies and, and because they have that trust with us. And it helps us realize and focus and prioritize looking at the same kinds of criteria for those vendors. And then we, we certainly have to modernize our supply chain risk management programs to how do we evaluate a trusted company and, it, and a lot of that's going to focus on what are the right mitigations? Like this is a critical vendor. How do we build our security architectures in the context that that trusted vendor could be compromised by an adversary and used to target me? Um, and that's probably the biggest change that we're looking at is um, supply chain risk management won't be uh, should we use this vendor or not, but how do we integrate them into our architecture in a safe way? So that was Nick Ward former Cybersecurity Leader of the Year Award winner. All right, next up, we have Roland Cloutier. And Roland was the former TikTok CISO, as well as at uh, ADP and uh, EMC. And in episode 71, he focuses in on an issue that everybody now cares about, which is how CISO should be looking at how to secure and ensure that artificial intelligence implementations are safe and trustworthy. I think it's good for CISOs to look at it in two ways. The first is, 
if my business is going to compete and succeed in the industry we're in today, and everyone else is using AI to reduce their OPEX and, and adjust their margins and drive new technology to make us better than the next guy, well, I better be doing it too. The second is my job is to defend a business and ensure the sustainability of the operations, the resiliency of the company itself, and you know, and the security um, of all the things that I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to be securing. So I've got to do those things. And AI is just a faster way of doing that. And there, I think there are key components we need to look at. So first of all, how do I help my organization figure this out? Because a lot of them are turning to us and say, make us make us safe and let us use AI, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you know, and, and I think the team like over at General Mills did a great job, right? And so they established clear guidelines, not a hard and fast policy, but clear guidelines. And then they educated their entire company, like their entire company. They went and said, here's how you can use AI. And so which, so which here, here are the guardrails. Right. And exactly. then ensuring that everybody understands what those guardrails are and how that potentially could then jumpstart their processes from there. And yeah. if you don't understand it, call 1-800-HELP-DESK-FOR-AI and we'll help you figure it out. The other thing we do is protect infrastructure. And really, AI pipelines, guys, it's just infrastructure and software. It's it's a CI/CD on crack for AI, and it's the infrastructure <laughs> that goes along with it. The 20% is the weird stuff like insertion defense and uh, scorecard management yeah, on the client side. Yeah, yeah, model defense, right? That's the 20%. And by the way, there's what, five companies out there, four companies that are kind of doing that in the market today in any real way. And so people are getting wound up around the, what do I do for the 20%? Do you know where all your AI is? Do you know the infrastructure it's sitting on? Is it micro segmented from the rest of the environment? Do you know what data is in that data infrastructure? Have you done data analysis, data defense on it? Do you know what is connecting and going out of those data stores? All right. <laughs> Do you know your API infrastructure that is connected to, to that? And, and do you have the right controls and monitoring capability in place? You've got enough work for the next year or two to protect sure. the def divine segment and protect your AI environments that will get you 80% of the way of protecting it. The, the rest of it, you know, there are great partners out there. So priorities for AI, help your company be successful in embracing and understanding it. Second part of it's going to be go do our jobs on the the infrastructure data and components that make up your AI environment. So now we've talked about AI. And now we're going to shift over to Jeff Brown, who was at the time the CISO of the state of Connecticut. In episode 29, he talks about how the role of the CISO in the state government compares to working in private sector, which he has also experience in. One of the really great things about information sharing, um, the partnership is really incredible. So, I mean, I've met like most of the other CISOs, many of which in person, um, you know, across all 50 states, really like 54 plus the territories, um, you know, and uh, there's groups like NASIO, which is the National Association of State CIOs, the, the multi-state ISAC, which is our information sharing, uh, but also like FBI, you know, all of our federal partners. Uh, the really big key difference is that we're not in competition with each other. Even mm -hmm. when I look at something like the FS ISAC, the Financial Services ISAC, um, you know, they were very good, right? Um, but I mean, like, they're at the end of the day, they're in competition with each other. Right, um, right. The states are not, I mean, the, the, the idea of competing with like the state of Colorado, that just, you know, that's just not really in the cards. Um, so we, we tend to be very, very transparent with each other. 
Um, and of course, since we're using taxpayer money, there's that element of, of uh, just having a transparent program. So we do share a lot of like what we're doing, uh, you know, anything that doesn't really expose, uh, obviously, any security vulnerabilities that, that might be used against us. But I mean, we really try to run a very transparent program and, and work with all of the other 50 states because, you know, really what we see is, uh, you know, we're on like signal together so we can all like kind of text each other in real time. And it's, it's I have to say, it's really a. Uh, you don't really feel like you're on your own here. Um, you know, obviously working in a state government, you have a little bit less uh, freedom in terms of, of uh, you know, spending. It's a little tougher to hire people. But I have to say the uh, the quality of people that I run across, uh, in certainly in the state of Connecticut, uh, the, the quality is extremely high. A lot of us are coming from, believe it or not, private uh, private sector. Um, so, so it's not always, you know, that 30, 40 year employee that's been in the, the public sector their whole career. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a really, I think, very good mix of public and private now. So that's really bringing a lot of different thought leadership and thought diversity, uh, you know, in terms of how we run things. And it's just been, it's been really interesting. I have to say it's, it's a fascinating job. One of the trends we explored was with Taylor Hersom back in episode 38 and the, the the use of virtual CISOs, the fact that you may not actually want to bring somebody on full time or can't afford to. And he goes through the, the pros and cons as to when it'd be appropriate to actually bring on a virtual CISO as opposed to a full time CISO. The way I describe security in general is it's very much a loop and not a line. So I think people need to realize that as soon as they start it, they can't stop it. There is whether you're pursuing SOC 2 or you are doing customer uh, security assessment questionnaires, those don't just happen once and then they're done. You have to maintain that SOC 2 attestation. You have to answer those questionnaires every year for the same customers. Um, and so first realizing that, that this is something that once you start, you you can't technically stop. Um, I think the way that we describe it, and, and I realize I'm, I'm biased uh, here, but Anytime you're you're under 500 employees, I think that there is actually value in going the virtual route or the the vendor route. Um, I do think that as companies get past that 500 employee mark, you need to have some kind of internal stakeholder. It doesn't necessarily need to be a CISO. We've seen people get by with compliance manager coupled with contractors. We've seen people with just senior security analysts. Um, and then I think that the, the way we'd like to describe it is your security team needs to be about 1% of your total headcount, um, 0.5 to 1%. Um, and people don't realize that that's like, that's, that's a pretty significant investment. So you go look at the salary of a CISO and a data compliant or a, a data privacy officer, a compliance manager, uh, they, they start to add up a lot. And I think I truly, truly believe that, especially for the startup and scale up market, you can replicate and and use a lot of the you you can usually get more value out of contractors than you can out of hiring full-time and the reason i say that for the security industry specifically is because there is a ton of volatility there is the the whole issue of people getting poached left and right and uh people being unfulfilled because we're all humans that that you've uh is exacerbated in the the security space and then of course the fact that people get overworked in this area and so you start to invest a lot of money into resources that aren't all that reliable and i don't mean that to to like to knock on cso's or security professionals by any means but it's the reality that we're seeing and so at least with vendors, you you have that ability to to get dedication. People will, I guess, always take your money for lack of a better term. And so usually the smaller companies can get by for a long time with using third parties. All the clips so far have been from men, which is not surprising 
since research shows that only 16% of CISOs are female. And how can you address that? In episode nine, we had three powerful leaders in the information security space. We had Lori Sussman, assistant professor in the Department of Technology at the University of Southern Maine. Tammy Schuring, who was the VP and global leader for voltage status privacy and protection at the time at Microfocus, but is now the CRO at Longbow. And we also had Phyllis Woodruff, VP of IT Risk and Compliance at Global Payments, who will be starting us off. One of the things I counsel any woman I come in contact with is own your skills, recognize them, embrace your superpowers. They are there. And I think it's so important that people see you know, women see people like you, Phyllis, and you, Tammy, as, you know, vice presidents, as executives, and have that executive presence that isn't necessarily emulating anybody but yourself. It, they're creating new pictures of leadership that include very feminine, wonderful attributes, including collaboration, inclusiveness, all the wonderful skill sets that women bring into the leadership role. For me in in security and in compliance, I have played um, a role that's different from many of my male peers and I refuse to be pigeonholed. I tend to work uh, much more broadly than they do. And a lot of what I do is about building consensus and building that buy-in to get us to the next level within the organization. And those are skills that, that we tend to have and own in, in greater proportion, I think, than, than many of our male peers. Yes, absolutely. I, you know, I, I will admit, I spent a lot of years in my career not realizing that I was the only woman in the room not even realizing I was the woman because I did show up knowing I belonged there. I'd earned my way there. Now looking back on it, there were moments where it felt like I did 10x my male counterpart to get there, but I was in the room and um, I had no doubt in my mind that my voice mattered and I knew my superpowers. But in the last number of years, I've really transitioned from, from that to literally making space at the table, M you know, creating as much space for more women and trying to find ways to inspire and excite. One of the things that um, I think has changed with cybersecurity, let's face it, it's, it's gone from a, you know, a focus on technology to in the last five plus years, more supporting the business. And, and some of the skills, Phyllis, that you talk about that, that women can bring to bear and, and Tammy, you're saying, you know, that some of the ability to communicate that lends itself also to this change, right? The geek techie guy isn't really good in front of the board. <laughs> exactly. You ever watch one of them? <laughs> yes. <laughs> in any higher level position within any organization, communication skills are paramount. Well, hey, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Um, we've pulled together, I think, some really useful clips to help better understand how the role has evolved and different perspectives on how you could think about alignment as well as budget, as well as how the leaders work with others. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Hello, producer Ben here, and if you enjoyed this clip show, 
Then we've got another edition of Reimagining Cyber that you may want to check out. Right at the start of 2023, we put together a selection of carefully curated highlights to mark the 50th episode of the podcast. Topics included the pandemic and its impact on cybersecurity, Iranian cyber strategy, and a behind-the-curtain view of the world of cyber criminals. Finally, please remember to rate and review the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you're not sure how, well, it's pretty easy. Just click on the rate button on the app and hit five stars out of five. Goodbye.